welcome back to the Non-Accident Novel Review. I'm author Matthew Glasgow. In this episode, we conclude Chapter 5. The perspectives of Arthur Aston and Oliver Cromwell gain prominence as we pick up where we left off until we circle back to Judah Rafferty and Phelan O'Neill. My intentions of depicting such brutality of war was to hopefully affirm the motivations of future characters slash historical figures, William Penn and Thomas Holm. It is their motivation for breaking from such endless bloodshed and starting in a new way in a new land. The chapter concludes almost as it began, with Jude praying at the cathedral once again. However, the cathedral has been disgraced, cluttered with instruments of war, and repurposed as a horse stable. There is juxtaposition as Jude is praying while his friend is being tortured and executed in the most painful way I can imagine. It is symbolic of the holy, pious, and invisible. The inaction and hope versus the ugly, evil, and real of this world. I believe somewhere between the real and imagined, there is truth. Inspiration. I will most likely have to cite William Faulkner in this chapter. An element that I always found fascinating in his writing was uh, the shadow of the past always looming in his setting and the psychology of his characters. I feel I had the quote from the novel Requiem for a Nun consistently in my head, which is, the past is never dead, it's not even past. The idea that we are here because of our ancestors. Very, fairly obvious in both the literal, but in the figurative, the spiritual, in our thinking and in our beliefs. I have a tendency, as I did in the chapter, to establish a character in motion, then go backwards with that character. Again, quoting Faulkner, the aim of every artist is to arrest motion, which is life, by artificial means and hold it fixed so that a hundred years later, when a stranger looks at it, it moves again since it is life. I want a character to be in a certain place, but constantly in a stream of thought and feeling, tethered to the now and past simultaneously, and continuing that motion throughout the novel. Change and the illusion of change at once. The protagonist, Connor Dempsey, is a product of all this. The past, real and mythic. The personal and fictional. Standing still and perpetually moving. Craft and Structure As the Irish Rebellion crumbles, Judah Rafferty and his family flee to the wilderness. There is an intentional return to the primitive reflective of the way of life of Ock and his kin in chapter 1. I wanted to illustrate how fragile civilization can be. At any moment, there is the possibility that we must leave it, or that it could disintegrate entirely. As humans, we inherently need one another. We are weak as creatures and need each other to survive. From there, civilization is born. It can be a wonderful thing at times, but also very terrifying and alienating. In this chapter, I tried to show the extremes of both, how we can feel empowered through each other, 
to the point of elevating beyond just the needs of ourselves as individuals, to the violence of war that is always brought about by this defense of ourselves and the civilization that we need to be protected. Each chapter is an echo of the previous one, until our protagonist, Connor Dempsey, is fully formed and released into our modern world. Arthur Aston, the Irish commander at Drogheda, hobbled with his forces to the city wall. Aston was a professional soldier who had fought against Parliament before, and was even held prisoner while fighting for Charles I at an outpost at Reading. He had known nothing but war, serving with his father since he could first recall, and yet lost his leg not from a bullet or bayonet, but from falling off his horse one day at the Oxford countryside. Rumors would swirl that within his wooden leg, lay gold coins and jewels. His men despised him, but he instilled order and a killer's instinct in their hearts. They had, after all, taken up arms to defend their kinsmen and what was rightfully theirs. The British had shown them nothing but brutality, and it was brutality the British would receive in return. Aston knew the Irish supplies and manpower were depleted, but he also knew that British would be vulnerable if they were to attempt to breach any side of the citadel. He divided his troops to the four corners of the city and waited for the British to make their move. At noon, the West Tower spotted a battering ram approaching with a regiment of soldiers. To Aston's surprise, a colonel was accompanying the troops. It was bad conduct to actively target an enemy's commanding officer, but Aston knew each action needed to be bold. Timidity would be death for this ancient yet fledgling nation. He also knew of Cromwell's zealotry and rigid belief in God's destiny for him. This type of man was very dangerous, a man whose righteousness deluged through his body and teemed out of his pores, a King David or Jeremiah or Nihilic or Charlemagne. In this man, the earth was, the pur- was for the purge of the wicked in his mind into a purity of only those like minds or the willing to kowtow and stay silent. And to this man, this ironclad roundhead commander and authority to all, death was but the will of God and a final act of everlasting redemption. Aston knew he was unlike his enemy, this Cromwell, for he feared death. He had witnessed kin and countrymen fall for their lives, and he was aware enough to understand that pain, that pain of wanting to die because of someone else's death. Aston had his wife and young son in this town. He was not a coward afraid to die. He was a lifelong soldier, but he thought of the morning as Lily would pour him a cup of ale and cook eggs and bacon and kiss him on the scar on his left cheek and hum softly to herself while she hurried Thomas to the breakfast table. And they either sat and Aston made a quip and they all chuckled or they didn't say a word and Aston would watch the sparrows from the window leap into the sun and appear and disappear in the sun. And James the shepherd would raise his staff for a hello to Aston as he and his flock shuffled past Aston's cottage window, and a man and flock climbed up the hillock until the fog wiped them clear from his vision. And so Aston would be bold in his strategy and command archers to fire at the British colonel until his horse was spooked and veered away from the surrounding guard, the horse neighing and lifting its front hooves off the ground, and the British colonel flailing his saber and yelling, The wall! while Aston's soldiers flanked both sides of the invading forces, and two dozen Irish soldiers fired at the colonel's head, piercing his chest and face and shooting his horse down, too. And the two dozen 
rushing forward and stabbing the colonel with their bayonets from all sides to such a degree that they could hear the ping of metal from one bayonet striking another while stabbing the colonel's torso. The British forces, even with their colonel dead, continued to march against Rakita West Tower. The Irish mowed them down in droves, but the British kept advancing and finally breached the wall but could not push any further as the bodies of their comrades impeded their progress and so retreated for the day. Cromwell's reserve reached new heights once he heard of his slain friend, Colonel Castle. He amassed the full scope of his army and stormed the tower. Irish archers held their posts steadily, but the fatigue and lack of ammunition soon set in. Cromwell's voice echoed through the Drogheda streets. Mothers, children, and the infirmed began to flee to other city towers and strongholds, if not fleeing the city with just the clothes on their back altogether. O'Rafferty's sister Catherine gathered her two boys and rushed towards Keegan, her husband, who came rushing down the street with a tourniquet on his right arm and a gash across his face. Other archers or pikemen followed behind, and soon the sound of musket fire filled the air. Bodies fell all around the family, and the smoke from the rifles, as well as the ever-encroaching cannons, engulfed the town. Keegan pushed Catherine and the boys forward, shouting in a muddled Irish brogue until he felt the musket ball pierce his thigh and he fell to his knees. Catherine looked back, but he was soon gone in the smoke, and a moment later dealt the death blow with a saber across his neck. Aston and the remnants of his troops shot back blindly into the smoke and then retreated to the South Tower, which held their remaining munitions. Cromwell's cavalry cut through the smoke like apparitions of nightmare, their faces hidden from the gray and black clouds, and only the luster of the armor and blades could be seen. Aston hobbled along until two of his men swooped over and carried him to and inside the tower. As the smoke began to dissipate and a handful of Irish rebels locked the tower doors and took up their arms, Cromwell and his horse stood, holding his rolled-up decree for, for British invasion and the terms of Irish surrender. Cromwell calmly read the decree with a wry smile in the corner of his mouth. It was all just bluster, the illusion of being a gentleman and civilized human. It was known by all in Drogheda that Cromwell meant punishment or death for these people. And when these people, who knew that surrender meant not death, but life in bondage and without their faith, language, and land, knew it was better to die. And so as Cromwell spoke his last words of armistice, Aston stood Aston picked up a pike and threw it from the tower down to Cromwell's feet. The British army heaved open the tower doors as arrows rained down upon them. Irish pikemen swung valiantly, but the British simply stepped back, cocked their muskets, and obliterated rows of Aston's men until they finally conceded, and Aston was wrangled down from the upstairs of the tower. Aston cursed and writhed as British soldiers carried him from all fours and threw him on the Drogheda ground. A soldier grabbed Aston's wooden leg and yanked it from his thigh. Soldiers banged the wooden leg against the cobbles of the street, the leg sounding hollow and containing no gold inside. With a small regiment of British soldiers surrounding and holding Aston down, he cursed and spat as they guffawed and mimicked his Gaelic curses, as if they were spoken from a child. Hear ye, hear ye, I knight you king of Ireland, one soldier said while using Aston's wooden leg as a ceremonial sword tapping it from each of Aston's shoulders and then smacking him across the face with the wooden prosthetic. Each soldier took a turn bludgeoning Aston with his leg until Aston, bloodied from head to toe, lay nearly unconscious. The sea of soldiers surrounding Aston then parted and Cromwell came forward. They placed the leg in Cromwell's hands and he grinned, weighing the light peg. 
You are truly worthless, he spoke, and then lifted the leg into the sky and crashed it down onto the top of Aston's skull, cracking the weapon and its target in half. Catherine, her boys, and the other civilians were gathered by Cromwell's troops after they had finished their assault on the Irish rebels. Cromwell stood before the captured civilians, a crowd of nearly 3,000. They were pitiful and wretched and a stain on the British Empire. How was God to place such tests before him? To create the corrupted, the testers of fortitude and will. Lesser leaders would bend before these creatures and compromise for peace. The true leader and pragmatist knew that peace was an illusion, a cheap parlor trick that only left the sucker empty-handed. An idea of peace was a sign of weakness, a sign of mercy after these now-weathered peasants were strong enough before to slaughter Protestants by the thousand, now, peg now begged for some reprieve. It would not happen. Cromwell could not allow another generation of Irish malcontents to slip through the cracks just to rise up again and lead to the demise of Cromwell and his kin. He had to be hard and decisive. They needed to know the consequences of rebellion. Cromwell first called for the male children and lined them against the tower wall. Their mothers cried out and flailed their outstretched arms, for there was nothing else to be done. Cromwell's colonel ordered two rows of soldiers to raise their muskets with his saber, and with a guttural fire, he swung the saber down to his side, and the boys fell like stalk on a scythe. A mother withered to the ground and swung her fist at any soldier in her perimeter. Cromwell ordered her up, and two soldiers escorted her to the mound of dead boys. She saw her son's red curly hair covered in blood with his eyes pressed shut, as if willing the bullet away from his body, and tragically knew that he had no will whatsoever only to live to be some token of discipline for another type of holy war. She wailed to the sky with her dead son pressed against her chest. Mutters of horror filled the Drogheda street. The mother collapsed to the ground and laid like a sack of stones, wrecked and beyond any tears. Cromwell's soldiers picked her up and placed her in front of the crowd of Irish peasants. With two rifles and the sun now clear, alone and beating down at the arrested image of two ironclad veteran soldiers and one ragged poor women, woman, two triggers were pulled and two metal balls left their chambers and exploded through the woman's skull and pungent black-gray smoke entered the air. Somewhere past the walls of town, finches flew indifferently in the same way they had done for thousands of years. Cromwell had called for no quarter that day and every unfortunate Irish soul on the grounds of Drogheda was massacred in a storm of metal, smoke, and fire. The few remaining rebel soldiers fled to the River Boyne, but were met by a squadron of British ships and blown away by cannon fire. A hundred other Irish soldiers hid in St. Peter's Church until the building was set on fire and they were either burned or shot to death. After Cromwell moved to the next fortified Irish town, O'Rafferty made his way to Drogheda and identified Catherine, his brother-in-law, and two nephews among the scores of dead bodies rotting in the streets. O'Neill was a fugitive of Cromwell's forces and had fled to an old Cranig by Ronig Castle, and it was no longer safe for O'Rafferty's family on the plantation. The O'Rafferty's traversed the Irish forest to evade capture and eventually settled in the Dun Enri forest. He and his family lived like beasts, scavenging for edible berries or leaves, and he would hunt with his bow and arrow. The songs were gone from Bree's mouth, and she could no longer bring herself to read the Bible. She would simply sit by the brook and run her fingertips along the water and stare up at the cracks of the sky through the trees. O'Rafferty thought about O'Neill often and wondered if a miracle had occurred, 
and the Irish regained control of the island. He had pangs of regret about how he did not remain by his friend's side. He knew he was a coward who had put his family before his country. Now he and Bree and their four children walked the earth like mice, scurrying away when an alien sound or a faint footstep in the distance was heard. They would most likely die of starvation in this forest anyway. He may well have died brave. Inevitably, the day came when a regiment of Cromwell's soldiers combed through the forest and discovered the O'Rafferty's. The family was sent to Dublin, where they were enslaved to the army to maintain food and munition supplies and unload cargo from British ships. He had mercifully been spared from execution, as his association with O'Neill and the British Confederation was not evident. But it was daily that a new head was delivered to the city of a revolutionary leader and placed on a spike in the center of town for all to see. One day, news came down that Phelim O'Neill had finally been captured after a valiant defense at Charlemagne and was being taken to Dublin to receive his punishment. The trial was a mere formality when he arrived, as he was named the ringleader of the Confederacy and convicted of high treason. Before O'Neill's execution, O'Rafferty was granted a visitation with him. O'Rafferty, seeing his friend bruised and chained, lowered his head in shame. I should be in there with you, O'Rafferty finally whispered. There was an immense silence, and O'Neill said, this is always how it would end for me. Keep your faith and your country with you and your family, and all of this will be worth it. Just stay with me as long as you can, and tomorrow do not witness the brutality they bring down upon me. Just go to the cathedral and say a Hail Mary for me. The following day, O'Rafferty did as his friend had asked and entered St. Patrick's Cathedral. Cromwell had repurposed the nave and the side aisle of the church as a horse stable, and the altar, which once contained the host, was now occupied by crates of ammunition and hay, but the crucifix remained hanging from the ceiling. O'Rafferty genuflected, entered one of the few uncluttered pews, kneeled down, and began to pray with his rosary beads while in the center of the city his friend was being hanged, emasculated, disemboweled, beheaded, and chopped into four pieces to be spread across Ireland. On that bloody end to Felon O'Neill, we conclude Chapter 5. Next episode, we will finally meet Connor Dempsey, intersected with the life of Thomas Holm, the original surveyor of Philadelphia. On we march to the modern world, our motto of non-accident in our minds and hearts. Thank you all for listening. Until next time.